just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. You know, that little clip from The Godfather 3, that's for those of you who know what I'm talking about. In any case, for the rest of you that don't, let me just tell you, I've been on the road for about four to five weeks now. I can't even count. I've been living out of suitcases from the East Coast to the West Coast, from the West Coast back to the East Coast, from driving across country to flying across country from hotel room to cots in the mountains of Montana. And I can tell you there's some advantages and disadvantages to living out of a suitcase. One of the advantages is, I can't think of any. The other disadvantages, however, are that you're not sleeping in your own bed. You need to find a place to eat every night if you're staying at a hotel where there's no food, and you're basically in places that are foreign to you. But on top of that, when you're running a podcast like Labor Relations Radio, one of the advantages is that you can record just about from anywhere. The disadvantage, however, is trying to find guests who want to come on in the evening when they're out of work and literally trying to spend time with their family or friends and have dinner. But I was fortunate enough this evening to connect with somebody who I've been trying to connect with for a few months, and he's an economist. And this episode is not really about labor relations or labor politics or even the labor news, although we do touch on some of it. But my guest this evening was Dr. Dan Mitchell, and he's an economist, and he's also co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity and the Center for Freedom and Prosperity Foundation. Now, Dr. Mitchell holds a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University, as well as his master's and bachelor's degrees in economics from the University of Georgia. And Mitchell was also a senior fellow with the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation and an economist for Senator Bob Packwood and the Senate Finance Committee. He also served on the 1988 Bush Quail transition team and was a director of tax and budget policy for Citizens for a Sound Economy. Now, Dr. Mitchell's byline can be found in such national publications as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Investors Business Daily, and the Washington Times. And he's a frequent uh, guest on radio and television, as well as a popular speaker on the lecture circuit. But I've been following Dr. Mitchell for quite a while now because we belong to a couple of groups on LinkedIn, and he's a very prolific writer who posts quite a bit, and I, I kind of got a flavor on you know his economic outlook, um, and I wanted to have him on, not necessarily to talk about labor relations, but to talk about the general state of affairs in the economy, and if you've been following the news over the last several months or buying gas or buying groceries, you know the economy's kind of topsy-turvy right now, and we're in a high inflationary period. So in any case, um, Dr. Mitchell was great, uh, gracious enough to come on this evening. Um, I recorded this from my hotels where I've been recording different hotels, obviously, or different places for the last uh, few episodes. But in any case, here's Dr. Mitchell. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Dr. Dan Mitchell, 
Welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you this evening? I'm doing just fine. Glad to be on the program. So I thought we could just talk generally um, about the state of affairs. And over the weekend, as I was watching the news a little bit, we started hearing the word recession. And uh, of course, President Biden kind of downplayed it before he fell off the bike, or it might have been after he fell off the bike. But um, you wrote an article recently, uh, about a month ago, and the first sentence of your article, which I thought we could start with, it says, America's fiscal future is very grim, largely because of an ever-expanding burden of entitlement spending. So let me ask you a really basic question. How grim is it? We're basically on a path to becoming Greece or Italy. Uh, our aging population, our falling birth rates, uh, you combine those things with a tax and transfer welfare state that was always predicated on having lots of workers, a lot more workers than retirees. I mean, you, know, you go back 30, 40, 50 years, and you had like you know five workers paying payroll taxes for every one person taking Social Security out of the system. Well, now we're down to less than three workers per retiree, and we're heading toward two workers per retiree. Uh, and not to mention, of course, that politicians like Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, they want to expand entitlement. So, so however bad the outlook is now when you're looking 10, 20, 30 years down the road, it's quite likely it'll get even worse because how do politicians try to get reelected? They promise goodies to voters uh, and then they leave the bill for future generations. But the problem is the future generations aren't too far away. And when you look at these long-run numbers, it is very, very grim uh, in terms of, uh, of what the outlook is for the United States. Because as the burden of government spending keeps growing and growing and growing, guess what? The politicians are going to figure out more and more and more ways to try to raise taxes. Uh, a lot of the class warfare stuff, of course, we're already seeing Biden pushing that. But ultimately, the politicians, in order to give us a European-sized welfare state, uh, they'll they'll want us to have a European style value added tax, which is sort of a, a hidden national sales tax. So if you're asking me, am I cheerful and optimistic about the fiscal future of America? No, I'm not. Uh, it, it's a very, very dismal uh, outlook unless we do some very serious entitlement reform. Do you see that coming anytime soon? I certainly don't see entitlement reform coming anytime soon. Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, Biden wants to expand the social right. welfare state. Uh, his budget, uh, you know, the original budget uh, was uh, over 10 years, basically $5 trillion of new spending added on top of a baseline, you know, the, the sort of the projections, if you do nothing, those projections showed government spending growing by a couple of trillion dollars already and Biden wanted to add a lot more spending to it. Uh, he, he sort of wants to, we're, we're going in the wrong direction automatically uh, at maybe 60 miles an hour. Well, Biden wants the floor, you know, hit the uh, gas pedal to the floor and head us in the wrong direction at 90 miles an hour. So in terms of fiscal policy, if you think Greece and Italy and France are success stories with their, with their, with their non-existent growth and high levels of unemployment, then by all means, cheer the current outlook that we have. Uh, but for, for a fiscal economist such as myself, uh, I'm terrified uh, that there's no hope of any good reform happening with Biden in the White House. Who knows? Maybe something good will happen in the future. 
So let me ask you, there's, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, uh, there's the term pigs, and that was Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. And I remember maybe eight or nine years ago when um, Greece was having to grapple with their, their, their austerity programs, I think they called it, and the riots in the streets and all of that, and they were just trying to trim a little bit, if I recall. And at some point, um, I don't think President Biden, well, if he does a second term, I don't know who's actually going to be running, running the government, but we, we seem to have um, a lot of people out there clamoring for, let's see, there's debt relief in terms of the student loans. We've got, um, obviously, the, the tax the rich folks out there. Even if you tax the rich, is that enough to cover what's owed? The class warfare tax stuff is mostly political. It doesn't raise a lot of revenue. Maybe on paper. I, I suppose. Let me back up a second. On paper, uh, you can collect a couple of trillion dollars by taxing rich people. But here's one thing, sort of a dirty little secret that even my Democratic friends will admit, at least behind closed doors. When you try to tax the rich, well, they're smart people, or at least they have smart tax advisors. Rich people can do all sorts of things to alter the timing, level, and composition of their income. Uh, they can uh, they can switch to relying on unrealized capital gains, which of course you know even Bernie Sanders hasn't figured out how to tax that yet. No country in the world taxes unrealized capital gains. Uh, you can uh, do things like if you're a rich person, put all your money in municipal bonds, which are tax free, uh, and then that used to be a very popular uh, uh, tax uh, strategy uh, back before Reagan slashed tax rates. Uh, so we're sort of, we're, we're going back to the tax policy of the 1960s and 1970s, which of course was associated with economic stagnation, assuming of course that some of these uh, policies get approved. So when I'm talking about this big growing burden of government spending in our future, and yes, politicians will propose you know, trying to go after the rich and soak the rich and let's raise taxes on the rich. In reality, the the evidence from Europe shows there simply aren't enough rich people out there and they're not sitting ducks who just, you know, just blindly say, okay, here, tax me and I won't change my behavior. We won't get the money out of the rich. The only way you can finance a European-sized welfare state is by taxing the poor and middle class, which is, oh, by the way, that's exactly what they do in Europe. If you look at the actual details of European fiscal policy, there's really not that much difference in how much we tax the rich and how much they tax the rich. They tend to have slightly higher rates on personal income. Uh, we tend to have slightly higher rates on capital income. But the net result is sort of a wash. Both Europe and the United States, we tax the rich, we tax the rich a lot. But the big difference in Europe between the value-added taxes, the very high social insurance taxes, the fact that their income taxes kick in with high rates at very low levels of income, the big difference between Europe and the United States is middle-class and lower-income people in Europe are taxed and taxed and taxed and taxed, whereas lower- and middle-income people in the United States have a relatively modest tax burden. So if Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Nancy Pelosi get their way, it's going to be ordinary people, not the Bill Gateses and the Warren Buffetts of the world. It's going to be ordinary people that 
that are going to be the ones having their wallets and purses emptied. So let me let me ask you a question. You touched on it a few minutes ago. Um, the like Social Security, for example, it was a five to one uh, ratio of of people working to those retired, and it's now around three to one. A lot of this seems to be, um, and it was projected. I heard this twenty years ago plus that the amount of baby boomers retiring, there's not enough people entering the workforce to basically carry the weight, right? And so I think that's getting, uh, we're coming to the that crossing road, that crossroads, so to speak, with regard to the baby boomers leaving. And I think the pandemic kind of pushed more out than, than initially thought. Um, but now we're, and this is not really to get political on the subject of immigration, but I'm wondering, is that where the next generation of workers is going to be coming in from to basically pay for the people retired? Well, there's no question if you can bring in millions of young workers uh, into the system, uh, you can extend uh, the, uh, the life of some of these entitlement programs. And don't forget, Social Security is just one entitlement program. Medicare and Medicaid right. are actually a lot bigger than Social Security. And in the long run, they're a much bigger problem than Social Security. I mean, if you look at the, the 30, 40, 50-year forecast, the burden of Social Security spending uh, will go up by one and a half, two percentage points of GDP. Not good news, but that's nothing compared to how much uh, the Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare, uh, you know, the health programs, those are the entitlements that are really killing us. So, but let's get back to your question. Can immigration solve the problem? It can alleviate the problem, uh, but but think about a Ponzi scheme because that's what a tax and transfer right. pay-as-you-go entitlement system is. A Ponzi scheme can work forever so long as you have what, what, what we learned in school was a population pyramid, a few old people, lots of workers, and even bigger generations of children underneath. The problem is, is our population pyramid is becoming a population cylinder because we're living longer and we're having fewer children. Uh, and, and can immigration solve the problem? It doesn't solve the long run problem. It can, it can at least for 10 or 15 years uh, help the ratio of workers to retirees. Uh, but by the way, keep in mind, if you really want immigration to help the system, you want as high income immigrants as possible. So if we're basically taking low income people from Central America, their lives are gonna be a lot better, you know, compared to living in a Honduras or someplace like that. They'll certainly provide some, some, uh, some workers for hotels and things like that, uh, uh, but they're probably not gonna earn enough income to really help the, the huge structural imbalances in some of these entitlement programs if we want to solve that problem, you basically have to say, okay, every lawyer, doctor, and architect in the world, you can come to the United States. And I bet hundreds of thousands of them would take that opportunity. But of course, that's not what politicians are talking about. Well, and the other issue with that is as the world becomes more automated and we've got artificial intelligence and robots taking a lot of jobs, um, I guess the question would be, where do you put those low-wage workers if, for example, instead of going to McDonald's and having somebody take your order, you're now doing it through a kiosk? There, there are fundamental issues uh, where people are projecting in the future 
there's going to be a major crisis in employment. I don't have an answer to that, but I'm blindly optimistic. And let me say why I'm blindly optimistic. We used to have over 90% of people working in agriculture in our economy. Well, automation and things like that, all of a sudden, uh, a lot of farm jobs disappeared. But what happened? We've got lots of manufacturing jobs. Well, manufacturing productivity has been increasing dramatically over the decades. And so manufacturing employment has fallen. But what's happened? We have a lot more service sector jobs. Uh, now, does that necessarily continue forever? No. So, so maybe the negative uh, scenarios of, of people being thrown out of work by automation, maybe they'll come true. But, but I just have a, you know, again, it's blind confidence that if you leave the market economy relatively uh, alone, uh, you know, don't, don't burden it with lots of taxes and red tape and things like that. I have faith that more jobs will be created in ways that we probably can't even envision right now, but time will tell. Yeah. It's, there's a, a, I've followed transportation a little bit and there's, you know, there's a big, this goes back to labor relations. There's a big uh, port negotiations going on in, on the West coast and a possibility of a strike, although it's remote and, you know, right around the corner, there's Volvo has just made, um, tractor, not really tractor trailers, but the tractor parts to haul current, uh, container from the container ships around. And I'm thinking, you know, how many port jobs is that going to take? And then, you know, the whole purpose of Uber, I was told many years ago, is not necessarily to have a uh, glorified taxi company. It's really to, for automated vehicles. So then you look at all the Uber drivers or Lyft or any of the other rideshare drivers. And eventually, if we're at automated vehicles, there's not going to be any jobs there. And then I start wondering, okay, so how do you replace the revenue from those taxes? Do you tax the robots? You know, it's all questions that I just kind of keep thinking about. The, uh, so let me ask you a more immediate thing. Um, and I started with this with recession because they're talking recession. And I'm old enough to remember that one of the big things that pushed us into the great recession back in, 08 was, or at least one of the things that triggered it potentially and exposed the underlying factors there was the rise in gas prices. And now we're higher than ever. And do you see us going into recession like others are starting to talk about? I fear that we are heading toward recession, but I don't think higher gas prices are a big factor at all. Almost every major economic a downturn in our nation's history uh, can be tied to bad monetary policy. Uh, bad monetary policy certainly played a huge role in the Great Depression. Uh, the, uh, the inflation of the 1970s uh, required a big recession, a double recession in 80 and 82 to get rid of that. Uh, we certainly can easily blame the Fed along with the horrible subsidies from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, for the uh, 2008 uh, economic downturn. Uh, so, so it's usually bad monetary policy uh, when, when politicians pressure our central banks to, to have an easy money policy. Why do politicians do that? Because it feels good uh, when you have an easy money policy, at least in the short run. Interest rates fall. It seems there's more money sloshing around. Uh, and so that all feels great. Uh, but then that bad monetary policy uh, either causes an asset bubble or higher consumer prices like we're seeing now and like we saw in the 1970s. 
And then when it's finally time for the Fed to say, oops, we made a mistake with too much easy money, they have to slam on the brakes. And it's very, very difficult to engineer a soft landing. Uh, so we probably have a recession coming. I very much hope that I'm wrong. But the number one thing to remember is we wouldn't be having this recession if it wasn't for the Fed's easy money policy in the first place. So everyone's going to blame the Fed for raising interest rates now. But what they really should be doing is blaming the Fed for dramatically expanding the balance sheet by injecting all this liquidity into the system in the first place, because that's what sets the stage for you know, when you step on the gas, it sets the stage for then having to slam on the brakes. Okay, so let me ask you really basically, um, and I'm going to do this in part for my own benefit, but also for listeners. When you're talking easy monetary fund or monetary policy, you're talking about the printing of money and the lowering of interest rates. So if my recollection serves, we, you know, we had the, the bubble burst with the housing market in 08. And I used the gas prices going up because that's where I started seeing the companies who buy large amounts of gas or fuel, diesel fuel, et cetera, trucking companies like starting to sound the alarms. And then as shortly thereafter, I think that was the summer of 07, is shortly thereafter all the housing bubble burst. You mentioned asset bubble a minute ago. Do you think we've been in an asset bubble for the last however many years with the housing prices? Well, economists are lousy forecasters, and I certainly don't want to get in the business of trying to forecast things. If I actually knew when bubbles were taking place and when they were about to burst, I'd be living in the Cayman Islands of Bermuda <laughs> right. right now, uh, enjoying life. Uh, so it's not as if economists can predict ahead of time uh, but there certainly is a lot of evidence with the, the Fed dramatically expanding its balance sheet. What does that mean, by the way, for people who don't follow monetary policy? It basically means the Fed injecting money into the system, not by printing you know, currency, but by buying bonds uh, and Freddie and Fannie securities on the open market. It's called open market operations. Uh, and, and when the Fed buys a government bond, uh, from uh, from private investors, it's basically writing a check on thin air. That's that's how the money gets created, the additional liquidity in the system. Now, when the Fed is creating a lot of money, and by the way, uh, to, just to give some background on this, when the coronavirus hit in the spring of 2020, that's when the Fed and the European Central Bank made the same mistake and others around the world, they panicked and said, oh my God, we have to provide a, a ton of liquidity into the system. And so the Fed and the European Central Bank both expanded their balance sheets by literally trillions of dollars, or in the case of the European Central Bank, euros. Uh, and when you create all this additional money, well, what is inflation? The definition of inflation is more, you know, more and more money chasing fewer and fewer goods. And so that bids up the price of, of, of goods and services. Well, sometimes it bids up the price of assets in the financial markets. Uh, sometimes it bids up, as I said, in the 1960s and 70s, and now it bids up consumer prices. So it really just depends on, on, on the economy at the time and how individuals and investors and businesses are reacting. But the bottom line is usually when central banks create too much money, there's some sort of negative effect uh, that's bound to happen, and we're living through it right now. Okay, so we've got the printing of the money on the one side, 
um, coronavirus, et cetera. We've also had the low interest rates since literally 2008, nine timeframe, right? So it's been very low. You've got a lot of money in this. We've had a, a tremendous amount of home buying that's been going on, which I still don't know how a lot of people are affording the houses that they bought throughout the pandemic. But now we're starting to see that level off. But the the homes have like increased in value, like double in some cases, or if not more. And at some point, I would think the housing markets, well, I think it's slowing now, but at some point it's probably going to slow way down. Um, they're starting to pull back on the on the money, obviously, raising the interest rates. At, at what point do we hit that crossroads where we start seeing people not being able to afford their mortgages anymore? If people have adjustable rate mortgages, they could be in for some unpleasant uh, developments over the next couple of years. But, but the bigger issue is, to what extent is there are there asset bubbles in the economy? And there's, of course, two main types of asset bubbles that people look at. One is sort of financial markets. Uh, you know, the, is the Dow Jones, the S&P 500, are they overvalued? Was there, did the Fed create all this money and it just wound up flowing into financial markets? And are we due for a correction? Well, heck, we're already sort of in the middle of a correction. Uh, but then there's housing uh, markets. Uh, is this going to be like 2007, 2008? where there was a big run-up in home prices, uh, again, fueled by bad monetary policy. And in the case of housing, you can you always need to make sure to blame uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, those two government entities that subsidize uh, mortgages. Uh, well, in all likelihood, if I had to predict, I, mean, I, I don't know whether it'll be tomorrow or one year from now or, or when. Uh, as I said, economists are lousy forecasters, but it certainly does seem... Uh, like we have a couple of bubbles, housing and financial markets that are in the process or at the beginning of getting corrected. Now, how far they fall, how quickly they fall, when they fall. And again, if I knew all the answers to those questions, I'd be rich. Yeah. And then in what markets do they fall? Because I'm, you know, I hear everybody I talk to is no one's an uh, economist. They're more just like try to stick their tea leaves out there. Or they're licking their fingers, stick them in the wind. But it's, you know, the southern market, Arizona, you know, which is getting a lot of Californians, southern market like Florida and South Carolina and on up, getting a lot of Northeasterners moving down there. So the predictions are that, you know, man on the street type of predictions, well, these markets might, might not be as bad as some of the other markets if, if it well, falls. And even, even in 2008, uh, you had some markets that – got completely killed and others were relatively unscathed because it all depends on you know where the bubble's happening and that depends on internal migration in the United States it depends on things like zoning laws uh, there are all sorts of factors that uh, that can determine whether you know a particular metropolitan area has a housing crisis or not right so on employment um, what do you consider to be full employment? And I, I asked that because when I was in college many, many years ago, they used to consider 5 to 6% full employment. And we've been running at 3.5, 3.6, et cetera, for, well, even pre-pandemic. And so I'm, I'm thinking about the job market because we're, 
you know, I deal with a lot of employers and, and reading articles and posting articles, et cetera. And the big thing out there is nobody can find help these days. And, and as a result, we're seeing wage inflation. Well, I'm even older than you, I suspect, because I remember being in college in the late 70s, early 80s, and people were talking about, well, maybe 7% was what was called the natural rate of unemployment, because uh, that's where structural and frictional unemployment, you couldn't get down below that, certainly. Right. And then over time, you know, once, once we basically had Reaganomics going into effect, and then you had the booming job market, and then we had more free market reforms in the 1990s, uh, it, it seemed like you know the entire economics profession realized, oops, we were wrong about it. It's not seven percent or six percent or five percent. Uh, it's a just a function of how strong your economy is. But now, here's something that's important to keep in mind when you're looking at the current labor markets. Yes, the official unemployment rate is low, but you also need to look at the employment population ratio or the labor force participation rate because that those numbers used to be much better uh, than they are now. Uh, if you look at total employment, uh, and, and you'll see, if you look at this Labor Department data, that there are a couple of million people that used to be in the labor force that are no longer in the labor force. Now, how are they supporting themselves? Well, given the expansion of the welfare state, many people are just saying, hey, it's easier to live off the government. Some people retired early. Uh, all sorts of things are happening. There's no single explanation for what, what's going on. But the fact that we have a low official unemployment rate, our labor market isn't nearly as healthy as that number suggests because we have these millions of workers that have simply decided they're going to sit on the sidelines now. And if you're sitting on the sidelines at the same time that employers are desperate to find workers, there's obviously a mismatch going on What's causing that that mismatch? Well, I think government uh, mistakes by government bear a lot of the blame. So um, when you talk about the labor market participation and some of it can be people sitting on the sidelines, do we also count um, those that have retired prematurely? In terms of the official unemployment rate, uh, that simply counts the people looking for work who don't, who haven't found jobs yet. So if, if when the coronavirus pandemic hit, if you were 62 years old uh, and all of a sudden, you know, everything got screwed up and, and, and you were remote working or maybe got laid off, well, some of those people said, hey, I'm not going to go back to the grind of a nine to five office job and deal with commuting and, hey, uh, you know, I can retire early on Social Security or maybe get some government benefit here or there. Uh, and yes, some people decided they're simply not going to work anymore. They don't count as unemployed because they're not you know, actively looking for work is the uh, term I believe that the Labor Department uh, considers. And that's why I keep saying that there are two different numbers. There's a labor force participation rate and there's an employment population ratio. They both tell the same story, which is that millions of people have left the workforce uh, that, that used to be in the workforce. The demographics of employment are changing and not in a way that's good and healthy for our economy. Yeah, so I just looked at the, um, I'm on BLS real quick, just looking at it, say, 20 years ago. Um, 
we're at 67 in January 2000, 67.3%. And now we're at, as of May 1st, 62.3%. So it's about mm, 5% percentage points less, which translates, what, 8 to 10 million workers? Yeah, like I said, millions of workers uh, that could be in the system in the employment markets or not in the employment markets. And, uh, and, and that's just not good news for our economy. Uh, they're not working, adding to our economic output. They're not paying taxes, of course, since they're not working, which exacerbates our, our government fiscal problems. They're also, in many cases, probably getting benefits from the government instead of working. Uh, and, and this sort of raises my concern. It's one of the reasons I'm worried we're going to become like Italy, Greece, and France. If you have a nation of people who figure, who say, hey, I just want to live off government, that obviously is not a sign of economic strength. Right. And so I guess as a if you're a policymaker, other than the trimming of the government largesse, um, the other question is, how do you replace the workers or bring in the tax revenues, which is either increased taxes on everybody or bring in more workers somehow, right? Well, they do want to increase taxes. Now, in the short run, they want to do the class warfare taxes. uh, But in the long run, they have no choice but to go after lower income and middle uh, class people. Uh, But as you say, there's also the option of, well, let's just bring in foreigners to do jobs that that these millions of Americans who left the workforce aren't going to do. That, sure, that's that could be part of a solution, but I do worry that that we we should be trying to fix the underlying problem of uh, people deciding that it's just not worth it to work anymore. Uh, now, is that the fault of high taxes? Is, is it the fault of uh, welfare programs that pay people so they don't have to work? Is it the fault of red tape that uh, makes it a challenge? You know, there's probably all sorts of answers to that question, uh, but. I don't think for the long run health of the country that the answer is simply to bring in more immigrants. I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-immigrant. I, I like the fact that America is a beacon to the world, that people want to come here and work and contribute. And we have so many businesses that get started by immigrants. So immigrants are a good thing. I don't want anyone to think differently. But if your idea of, of solving America's employment problems is simply bringing in immigrants, I think that's an incomplete answer because it's not good to have millions of Americans, native-born Americans, deciding, I'm just not going to work anymore. Now, it's not like we need everyone working between the ages of you know 18 and 65 or whatever. You'll have stay-at-home spouses. You'll have transitional unemployment. It, you know, We're not shooting for 0% unemployment or a 75% labor force participation rate, but the fact that our labor force participation rate has fallen dramatically, that's an unhealthy thing that should be fixed, whether we have you know, no immigration or whether we have a huge amount of immigration. Yeah, I think um, part, of the, part of the problem is, and we're seeing this literally on the streets where you've got the help wanted signs, um, you probably remember, or at least are aware of the whole fight for 15 movement, some some years ago and that has now morphed to in certain municipalities 
Um, I think Austin, Texas is doing either $18 an hour or $21 an hour, kind of as a quote living wage. And then, you know, you're seeing it out in California. They're now trying to push to, I think it's around 20 or $21 an hour. Hasn't been mandated yet, but we're seeing this huge escalation in wage inflation. I was, I was in Montana recently and I saw a sign at Taco Bell starting pay 21 to $23 an hour. And, you know, that's just to attract the bodies coming in because we're seeing it's at least in the business world, newspapers, et cetera, we're seeing this tremendous competition to find labor. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of on both sides of the immigration issue. I think, you know, there needs to be um, immigration obviously for obvious reasons. And it's just a matter of making sure it's legal immigration. So that means you got to fix our immigration system, but it's, yeah, it's just fascinating seeing what's happening right now. This is not like our last recession, which was, you know, we saw there's a lot of home buying for folks that probably shouldn't have been buying homes, couldn't afford the homes, getting bad mortgages, which were adjustable rates. And, you know, everything kind of blew up all at once and, and unemployment went up. This one, I'm kind of curious if we're going to see unemployment shoot up like as in the past, just because the the shortage out there. Well, given the fact that you have lots of employers looking for people, uh, it's a very strange situation. When I was growing up, and maybe some to some degree when you were growing up, uh, recessions were characterized by high official unemployment rates. Mm-hmm. But because of what's happened to our labor force participation levels, uh, we may have a recession and never see unemployment go above 5%. Then again, economists... You know, we we drive using the rearview mirror when we try to do forecasts. Uh, so everything that we think might be happening could be completely different. Uh, uh, and when we, of course, we don't know what whether there's, they're heading for a recession or maybe even another fiscal crisis in Europe. Uh, so I, I, I certainly don't want to make any predictions because I'm sure, just like every other economist, I'll get them wrong. So. Um, were we to see a recession and, you know, are the fundamentals like the, the business fundamentals out there? Are we, I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the press about, you know, the diesel prices shooting up, which is affecting everything, trains, shipping, et cetera. Um, is it, do we have overvalued employers or companies out there that, are going to crash or are we going to see the bankruptcies that we did? I know you just said you don't want to forecast stuff, but I'm kind of just trying to get my arms around what the tea leaves look like. Normally when a recession hits, if you want to know who's going to be in trouble, look at who has high levels of debt. Uh, who, who, who was it? Warren Buffett, I think said uh, when the, uh, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. Well, our tax code subsidizes debt and penalizes equity. So a lot of companies rely on debt. uh, And and that's unfortunate because one of the things that happens in a recession is you no longer get as much income. Well, how do you service your debt? You service your debt out of your cash flow. But if your cash flow drops, uh, well, 
you have no choice. You have to pay your bonds. That's a legal obligation. So what are you going to go after? You're going to start cutting your labor costs. You're going to lay off workers. It'd be so nice if we had a sensible tax system that didn't encourage companies to make illogical decisions, but those decisions are logical given the illogic of the tax code. Uh, so look for companies that have high levels of debt. They're going to be very vulnerable. And of course, historically, you know, what happens in a recession? Discretionary expenses are the ones that get cut uh, by people. Uh, so you can look at industries that, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, the restaurant industry or something like that might be vulnerable. Of course, they had a very hard time uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but who knows whether this recession will be like past recessions? And who knows what the international factors are going to be? Uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel good right now. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the long run outlook is very dismal. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to be optimistic about the short run outlook either. Yeah, let me. Um, so let me ask a, a somewhat political economic question. I, I believe you're what we would refer to as a classical liberal, right? Liberal yes. economics, um, not to be confused with liberal politics. Uh, would that would that also be viewed as somewhat libertarian? Or is it yes. Uh, uh, well, first of all, if you, if you get five libertarians in a room, you're going to get seven different definitions of what right. it means. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but to make it very simple, a classical liberal, the tradition of Adam Smith and people like that, is basically sort of a libertarian. Uh, and a libertarian, you could say, well, that's sort of like a small government conservative. Uh, now, of course, then you get into social issues and things like that. Uh, but yes, I, I view myself economically as a classical liberal, which means I believe in small government, open markets, free trade, uh, competitive uh, economy. Uh, and that's different, of course, than a lot of what we get out of Washington. Okay, so, so you mentioned free trade for a moment. So let me get your opinion on all the bluster that's going on about China. Is that something that is being overblown in the media, or is that something that we don't need to be that concerned about? I always divide China questions into two parts. There's the generic trade debate. Should we be trading with China? Uh, the answer is, yes, we should be trading with everybody. It, it makes us richer as a country to have free trade. The second part, though, is what if China is not a good country? In other words, if China is a geopolitical foe, uh, if they are trying to cause trouble in the South China Sea, if they're, if they're engaging in technology theft, uh, are they a military opponent? Uh, is is it is it morally right to trade with a country that puts uh, millions of people into concentration camps? Those and uses, are and uses their labor to manufacture things that we consume, right? Like the Nike debate and all that. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't think. I mean, at least to to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that the things that we buy get built with slave labor. But you know, I, I confess, I also don't pay that close attention to that issue. But in, in terms of the trade debate, free trade is good, period, underline, exclamation point. 
some countries aren't nice countries. Uh, for instance, today we're debating, you know, how much economic interaction should we have with Russia? Should we be uh, cutting off economic ties with them? Uh, should American companies be pulling out of Russia? Well, obviously, there's a lot of pressure to try to penalize Russia for its imperialism in Ukraine, and not to mention some of the atrocities that are happening there. Well, is China Russia? Are they worse than Russia? Are they not as bad as Russia? You know, foreign policy, in my mind, has always been a lot harder of an issue because it's probably safe to say that President Xi in China is not a good guy, uh, but maybe there'll be a Deng Xiaoping-type reformer that, that replaces him. So maybe we don't want to view China as a permanent long-run enemy because maybe they won't be a permanent long-run enemy. But the point is, even as a libertarian, classical liberal, whatever you want to call me, even from my perspective, it's sometimes legitimate to have trade barriers with a country, but not for reasons of trade protectionism. Instead, it should be justified on a very you know, hard-nosed, logical uh, foreign policy basis uh, that, okay, country X is being a bad country, and so therefore, we don't want to trade with them uh, because we don't trust them, because they're not playing by the rules, uh, because they're engaging in bad behavior. Uh, but again, those arguments should all be non-trade related because free trade in and of itself is a good thing, makes us richer. I mean, it's, it's good to have free trade between California and Texas, between New York and Illinois. Well, likewise, it's good to have free trade between countries, but of course, it's one thing to have free trade with Japan and Germany and other civilized, well-behaved countries. It might be another thing whether or not you have free trade with China and Russia if they are behaving in ways that uh, cause problems in the non-economic sphere. So I asked you the, the question, and I, I kind of dovetailed the political aspects of this, um, and sort of for a reason, but it wasn't necessarily about China, but it does open up this kind of Pandora's box. We seem to be, from a political standpoint, upside down with respect to the free trade versus protectionism. And it, it seems to be over the last six years, um, whereas you know, the unions and the left forever had had lobbied against, quote, free trade, whether it be Mexico, China, cheap foreign goods coming in, stealing American jobs, the steel industry, for example, uh, collapsed due to, to free trade. And then Trump took office in 2016, 2017, he took office, elected in 2016, and it kind of reversed, whereas now the Republicans are more protectionist versus now we're starting to hear Joe Biden, depending on what day it is, talk about relaxing the tariffs on steel with China. And it's just like we're in like an upside down inverted what things used to be. Although I think the Smoot-Hawley tariffs were Republicans, if I recall, back in the uh, 28 or 29, whatever that was. So. The history of trade is that Republicans uh, historically were the protectionist party uh, in the 1800s uh, into the early 1900s. Uh, Smoot-Hawley was a Republican uh, protectionist bill. Of course, mm -hmm. it was a terrible bill, helped contribute to the Great uh, Depression. Uh, but then as we got uh, in sort of the post-World War II era, everything flipped. The Democrats being the party of unions became the protectionists and Republicans 
became the free traders. Now, Trump changed that to some degree uh, because, of course, he was a protectionist himself. Uh, but I don't think the Democrats have really changed. Uh, if you look at all the bad things Trump did on trade, what has Joe Biden done to reverse them? Almost right. nothing. Right. Uh, you know, and Biden, historically, has always been a protectionist. He's always been uh, in the pockets of the unions. Uh, and, and, and even though unions now, you know, the most union members now are government bureaucrats. They're not manufacturing workers. But but Biden has been around, of course, for 50 years in politics. So, you know, he grew up and came of age when when being a union man meant you were in a private sector manufacturing plant and the Democratic Party were the protectionists. So Biden, by his own instincts, uh, maybe not for the same reasons as Trump, but he's always been a protectionist. And he's still a protectionist now. He's not fixing the mistakes that Trump made. Uh, you know, I, I think he eased up a little bit on some of the tariffs with some of our allies, uh, but most of them still remain. Uh, and that's unfortunate because you know I fully expected Biden to be bad on on taxes and spending and regulation, but I hope simply by virtue of not wanting to be Donald Trump that we would get better trade policy. Uh, but uh, no, Biden is a protectionist, and uh, and we're not getting anything better from him. Yeah, and there's is only a little bit of talk about whether or not he was going to relax the tariffs on China, and then I think the steel workers came out and said it's not the right time, or maybe it's uh, the AFL-CIO new president said that last week. So it was just it was interesting because it was you know the Democrat president leaning towards relaxing tariffs in opposition to his main constituents, whereas the the former president, who is the enemy of labor, et cetera, kind of was doing more to help them. It's just, I found it an interesting dichotomy. Mm -hmm. The, um, so if you were, if you're a betting man and I, I, this is an unfair question, um, you think 2023, latter part of 2022, well, let me let me back up for a second before I go there. We have a midterm election coming up. Um, it's in theory the Republicans should do very well in the midterm elections. Is that going to change the economic grimness of your forecast? If Republicans take the House, or maybe even take the House and the Senate, I don't think that really changes anything because Biden's agenda already is strong. Uh, he's not his, his really terrible build back better plan, all the tax increases and welfare state expansions mm -hmm. that hasn't gone through and has, hasn't gone through with Democrats controlling the House and Senate. And I can't see it happening uh, before the midterm elections this November. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong on that. Uh, OK, so then Republicans take at least the House and maybe the Senate. Well, obviously, the Build Back Better plan isn't going to go anywhere, but it already wasn't going anywhere. Uh, so I'm not terribly optimistic about the economy. I don't think Republicans taking the House or the Senate would materially change anything about a short-run forecast because it's not going to affect what legislation may or may not pass because we already have a, a de facto stalemate and gridlock. And if Republicans take the House or Senate, We'll have de jure uh, yeah. gridlock. Uh, gridlock. But again, the net result is the same. Well, and, it's, I, and I don't think there's anything they could do to change the trajectory anyway, right? It's 
kind of like the economic die has been cast over the last several years? Well, the, the bottom line is we're in trouble in large part because the Fed did such aggressive, uh, easy money policies, starting with the pandemic, which, by the way, all of those mistakes happened before Biden ever got to the, to the White House. Not that he would have been a, opposed to them because Democrats historically are the easy money party anyhow. Uh, so we had easy money policy that starting in spring of 2020, that has set the stage for the economic misery that we're suffering now. Uh, and however that plays out, whether it's official recession or simply a, a, a bumpy uh, landing, uh, you know, who knows, but that is baked into the cake. Uh, and whether Republicans take the House and or Senate doesn't really, I think, change anything. Right. Now, Let me ask. Now, go ahead. If Republicans take the House and Senate, and then a Republican wins in 2024, uh, the White House, then obviously it could have very big implications or it could have no implications at all, depending on whether Republicans find themselves uh, the second coming of Ronald Reagan or it's just some, you know, big government Republican like, uh, you know, Bush uh, or Trump. Right. The um, are you following at all the what's referred to as the PRO Act, it's the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, and it's it basically changes the landscape with respect to labor law, employment law throughout the nation. It eradicates um, right to work states, and there's one specific part, which is why I'm asking if you're familiar with the PRO Act. But there's one specific part that essentially installs what's referred to as the ABC test which is California's AB5, puts that across the nation and impacts about 59 million or so gig workers or freelancers. Have you, are you familiar with that at all? I'm probably not familiar with it enough to, uh, I know it exists and I know it's part of uh, the Biden White House agenda to try to uh, uh, curry favor with the unions, uh, but I'm probably not familiar enough with it to have any sort of in-depth commentary on it. Yeah, well, it's and it's the one segment of the freelancers or, or basically eradicating freelancers um, or the gig economy through this ABC test. And I've I've done a couple podcasts with freelancers and and uh, policymakers and so on or lobbyists actually. Um, and it's, I found it fascinating because I've been tracking the PRO Act for a few years, but I never really realized how big of a gig economy we have, which is the 59 million Americans doing some sort of freelance or gig work. And just the elimination of that, I'm just, I was curious, you know, if you followed that, what kind of economic ramifications that would have? Well, to the extent that I followed it, it actually gets discussed in fiscal policy circles because the IRS historically has never liked freelancers, has never liked contractors. They want to try to catalog and categorize everyone as an employee uh, because it just makes it easier for them to withhold taxes and things like that. Uh, so there is this fiscal component of what you're talking about where the federal government has always wanted to, to try to cram everybody into the category of being an employee someplace uh, and so there, there has been this long-run, long-term, pre-existing bias against the freelance gig economy contractors of the world. Uh, but of course, there's also the element that you're talking about, 
which is that you have unions putting pressure on the Democratic Party uh, to try to create a, an employment scenario where it's easier for them to organize and get union dues and things like that. Right. Yeah. And it was, it was the, well, the IRS test in terms of what's a subcontractor versus an employee, that one is, that's like a cakewalk compared to what the ABC test is, which is, you know, it's just three components, but it's, it really puts a stranglehold. And we saw the evidence of that in California when they did AB5, but now they just want to nationalize it. And, and of course, the Department of Labor is trying to push it along as well. And I don't think they're going to do it in the PRO Act. I think they're looking for other avenues now. And there's a couple, uh, one, at least one Supreme Court case on AB5. But it's it's just kind of fascinating. And I was just wondering, if, like the gig economy itself, like what that would do to the overall economy if all of a sudden that got erupted or or, or disrupted, I should say. Well, it certainly wouldn't be good. Uh, the idea that the entire country should copy California Right. Uh, just on the face of it, uh, you know, other than maybe if we could somehow copy low humidity and sunshine 340 days a year, that's about the only thing out of California that I think would be worth copying. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, well, Dr. Mitchell, I, we were on for close to an hour, and I, I really appreciate it because I, I, I've been following you for a while. I see your posts here and there, and I wanted to um, – kind of just have a, a wide-ranging conversation and, and try to get a better handle on terms of what's going on economically. So I, I appreciate it a lot. Oh, thanks for having me on the program. It was an interesting, albeit depressing conversation at times. It, well, it is these days. And I'm, you know, I, well, you and I are probably both similar in age. And I've, as I gotten older, I'm just more fascinated by, by alarmed. Rather than being alarmed, I'm just more fascinated by it. So it's kind of fun. But I've been I've been through a few recessions and yeah they're bad and ugly and all that stuff but I think there's a whole swath of young people that have no idea what it's like and right now they're, unfortunately unfortunately they're probably going to learn yeah it's uh, it's one of those things that uh, we're seeing it in the job market and a lot of uh, laborers got the upper hand so to speak and by that whether it's union or non-union and I think that's going to change if we start seeing high unemployment again but. Anyway, well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Dr. Dan Mitchell from the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. And I wasn't really sure where the conversation was going to take us. I did not think it was going to be such a grim picture, but it, it does appear rather bleak. And as I always say, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, whether it's professionally, personally, or otherwise. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. I'm going to try to be getting some more episodes up while I'm traveling. Um, I'll be living out of a suitcase for a while, it seems, and operating remotely. But we'll see what we can do about getting more guests on in the evenings. In any case, thank you for listening. I look forward to the next episode. See ya. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.